So the topic is the rebellious nature of the Buddha. And kind of going to give a little bit of my take of that. It's really what turned me on to Buddhism when I started to took a philosophy. You know, I took a philosophy class, you know, fifteen years ago, and I uh, understood a little bit about meditation, but not a lot about like the historical Buddha or the religious quality or the philosophical quality. So, and of course, I have some opinions about whether this is religion or whether this is philosophy or whether this is. Uh, a moralistic truth seeking doesn't really matter you have to come up with your own decision on that anyway but here's a little bit of my take so the youthful kind of Shakyamuni Shakyamuni is the tribe that um, Siddhartha Gautama came from they were the Shakyamuni tribe and they were located in the northern uh, part of India, which is now called Nepal, but it was just past, just across the border from India to Nepal now, is, uh, was the home of the Shakyamuni tribe. And the, the, the young uh, Shakyamuni was best described as a humanist, a seeker of truth, and he had a keen sense of justice, even as a, you know, as a child. And um, you know, he was often, he often opposed the uh, strict class system, especially the elite class of Brahmins who had uh, positioned themselves in these kind of high authority positions uh, that was kind of really known in India at the time. Uh, He really, you know, set, later on, you know, he really set apart from that. Uh, So I'm going to talk about the, you know, kind of some of the rebellious qualities that I find within the Buddha. The Buddha was said to have been uh, very sensitive and intellectual in his younger years. And often, as a boy, questioned the Brahmins who were his teachers. So he often always kind of had this, you know, kind of pessimistic view and questioning. And uh, it becomes, you know, a part of his core teaching, as we'll find out. He was regarded uh, as belonging to a group of reformist thinkers. People that tried to step outside of what was the status quo, outside of the norm of the time. So Siddhartha Gautama uh, rebelled against his class and his position, against the thinking of his time. He was uh, propelled in the questions of birth and death, sickness, old age, and suffering. This uh, dissatisfaction with life. This was the kind of movement that propelled him to set out uh, as the role of a truth seeker. So, you know, he was a prince, right? The son of a king. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, you know, the story. You know, there's the kind of the story of the Buddha that's out there. It's in lots of different places. You can actually, I think, YouTube it. There's like a... Good little thing on YouTube now that PBS put out called The Buddha. It's pretty good. But, it, you know, you can read the whole story of the Buddha. But he was the son of a, son of a king. He was born into a warrior caste. And uh, his father and um, others around him were Brahmins. They were, you know, higher class of people. And, uh, and he rebelled against that. He had everything he wanted. 
He had uh, a wife. He had a child. He had concubines, servants. He had all the food he wanted. He had four or five palaces for different times of the year. He had it made. And yet there was some longing that he had come. He was still dissatisfied. So then he went to the other extreme. You know, by leaving this Cush life. There was a prophecy on, at his birth, actually. A sage had come and said, uh, you know, that, that basically, you know, your son to the king and the queen, they said, your son will be uh, proposed, uh, you know, with some kind of longing, some kind of question in his life. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll make a decision. And that decision will be either to be a great king or a healer of the world. This was what was prophesied. And so, you know, the king and the queen were like, well, we want him to be a great king. So, you know, they tried to shelter him, you know, put him in temples and give him, give him the good life. But still, he had this longing. This, he still recognized this dissatisfaction, so he set out. So intermingling was taboo, especially around uh, accepting food. So just the fact that uh, that the Buddha to be or Siddhartha Gautama, you know, took the spiritual seeker role from the line of kings was an act of rebellion. And because you know what he did basically has become a a, a sadhu uh, or a uh, truth seeker is that he wouldn't accept food or he would only accept what was offered. He wouldn't kind of have buy food or have people prepare food for him. That kind of thing. And so that means he had to accept food from anyone. And this was just totally against, you know, uh, everyone else outside of his caste were considered unclean or untouchables. It's still that way in India today, actually, which is horrible. But it is. So, you know, he actually never uh, settled or accepted uh, other teachings fully on their own on their, kind of on their own merit or on the merit of the teachers, that he always looked at whether or not this was true for him and uh, always kind of kept that kind of questioning and inquisitive nature of, is this you know, enough? Is this the end to suffering? As he would practice these kind of body uh, mortification practices of kind of disidentifying with the body, he would practice you know, extreme yoga, extreme, you know, he did lots of extreme practice. And uh, none of them uh, led to his final, his you know kind of complete awakening. They relieved. They would help him control his mind. They would help him disidentify with the body. But the the freedom from suffering that he was looking for, he didn't find within teachers. And so he would surpass many of his teachers and then leave on his own again. So he never accepted any one teaching uh, as this is the way. This is the truth. And actually, uh, later on, you know, in his, after his enlightenment, he basically says the same thing, like DIY, do it yourself. You have everything, all the answers within. You, know, you just got to practice diligently, as if your life depended on it. So the Buddha after his enlightenment, offered this teaching to everyone without exception. 
and taught about the acts of generosity and loving kindness as the antidote to greed and to hatred. So, I mean, that's essentially the Buddhist teaching. You know, act with a generous heart, be loving and kind, and uh, you will uproot what he called the kilesas, the torments of mind, the suffering that uh, he found in, in all things. And that is basically through generosity, loving kindness, and through the practice of present time awareness. This kind of uh, gaining, mm, gaining knowledge and then through experience turning that knowledge into wisdom. I was talking um, late, earlier this week at another group about how this practice is about rising things up and then taking a look at them. So we sit and we try to sit as relatively still as possible and we follow one point, whether it be the breath or you know, sound or you know, whatever that is, to gain, just to have a point so that we can then, if we're focused on that point, we can then begin to observe all the other things that are arising and then the truth will be revealed to us, from us. So he talked about the practice of present time awareness will deliver us out of the, delus- the, the, the delusion that we currently live in. <laughs> this deluded state. And it's really uh, like what the Buddha would say on numerous occasions is um, it's you know, uh, mixed perception. It's upside down perception that we see permanence where there is impermanence. We see uh, happiness where there is suffering. This kind of misperception. And really, the Buddhist point is like, so if we can, if we can practice present time awareness and gaining samadhi, concentration, understanding, disidentification with the body, with our thoughts, with our emotions as being me or mine, then we'll, we'll see what's kind of like in between the cracks. So this was um, totally rebellious from what was happening at the time. At the time it was uh, follow these rites, these rituals, pray to this statue and you will be forgiven of your sins. Dunk your head in this water and you will be forgiven of your sins. And the Buddha spoke uh, adamantly against that after his enlightenment. And basically said rites and rituals are not the way to salvation. That salvation is within. Find it yourself. No praying or uh, proselytizing is going to help you. Or um, so, yeah. I mean, he, you know, there's there's lots of kind of things that he talked about. Like he basically spoke out about the Ganges being this whole the holy river, and he said if the if the Ganges were so holy, then the fish and the crabs and the you know, the, uh, all the shellfish that live within the Ganges would be fully enlightened. And anyone that, that, that dunk their head into the Ganges would have, would, would, there would be no sin. It would be totally wiped clean. But this is not the case. And if you've ever been to the Ganges River, you know that it's 98% fecal matter. And still the, considered one of the holiest places. And people are still washing themselves, hoping to relieve themselves of, of sin. And the Buddha said, no, that's not the direction. 
That's the wrong direction. The, the direction is to look inward. To see things clearly. And that the, the kalesis, the torments of mind, come from within. Greed, hatred, and delusion. And that we're the only ones that can break that spell. And we can only do it by seeing clearly. So it wasn't very... Uh, it wasn't very favored by the Brahmin class that were trying to keep these rites and rituals and which only were um, allowed if you had enough money to go into church and pray and do the rites and do the rituals and hire a Brahmin. So all were welcome. Women, the poor, beggars. There's uh, stories of, of the Buddha teaching to prostitutes and um, children and people that were considered mentally ill or crazy. Kids, regardless of uh, sex or orientation or any of it, all were welcome. All one needed was a desire to wake up and to practice. That's it. The Buddha rebelled against his own mind, his own conditioning, his thoughts, his body, mental formations, the uh, content of the mind, the, the misperception. There's this um, teaching uh, that prior to the Buddha's full awakening, that he began to discern between unwholesome and wholesome thoughts. Thoughts that led to more greed, more hatred, more wanting, more kind of desirous uh, qualities. And then the qualities of mind that were considered wholesome or skillful that led to more happiness, more freedom, more generosity. And then as he began to do that, uh, you know, he began to kind of see that shift taking place. Habits of mind is what I like to call it. it of course, we could see that too. The Buddha even sat in rebellion against uh, the attack of Mara, also known as the hindrances, right? The, the, these uh, brambles in the path, these things that get in the way of our progress. Doubt and uh, laziness or sleepiness, restlessness of the mind and body, desire, aversion. These are the things that get in the way. That his defiant nature and power uh, to question was a quality that I believe led to his departure into homelessness in the first place and led to also to his awakening. His defiance of the, of the other teachers and saying like, no, it's not, I'm not done. And there was basically like gurus that would, you know, he would come to meet or surpass in practice and then they would say, please be my teacher now. And, and the Buddha would reject it and say, no, that's not, this isn't the path, there's more. And keep looking. That his rebellion against uh, the teachings of, ri of rituals that were hierar hierarchical, that were classist. After his enlightenment, he just said, that's all bullshit, really. I said that with the recording on. <laughs> <laughs> It is the rebellious nature that I believe is pointed to in the Kalama Sutta. The Kalama Sutta is this um, story of uh, the Buddha having come to the, this 
this group of people, this village called the Kalama village. And they were on the they were on the Ganges, kind of up north, and they were um, they, there was a, the, a steady flow of people coming through their village. And each week, they basically they were they had a new you know enlightened guru that would come and say, "This is the path. Follow this path, and all your sins will be forgiven." And this is the path to truth. Each week would be a different practice, and a different teacher, and a different style, and there were lots of them. And so the you know the Kalamba people were like, what makes you different? You know how how are we to know that your teaching, your your you know practice is the the true practice? And it was a great question. And uh, you know I, I believe you know the, the Buddha kind of hearing this question, uh, you know sat in sat into a, a meditative kind of quality and. Answered this way. This is kind of a paraphrase of, of his answer in, that's found in this sutta. That he basically said to the Kalama people, and as part of his teaching, do not believe something because you have heard it before, because it's an old tradition. Do not believe something because it is written in religious or other books, because superficially it seems true, logically or philosophically it seems true. Because teachers or elders say it is true, even famous ones. That the Buddha told the Kalama people, only believe something that you yourself have experienced the happiness of the practice. Or that it leads to the, re- the relief of suffering in your own life, or that can be verifiable in the lives of others. Trust your own experience is the, teacher of, is the teaching of the Buddha. Trust your own experience. Find freedom through clear seeing of the Dharma, means truth, or the teaching. Through your own direct experience. This is where he says, do it yourself. The Buddha even said, you know, even if I give a teaching that doesn't fit for you, don't take it on. Only if, it, only if you can look within, question, look within, see if it's true for you. But you have to practice it. You can't just uh, understand it and then be able to experience the freedom of. Sometimes there's some freedom that comes with knowledge. You know? <coughs> but this is a practice uh, of doing. Eh, really it's a practice of being. Not really a practice of doing, of being, being present with what is. One of my uh, friends and colleagues, Noah Levine, likes to say this is a, a an excavation process. It's actually the truth is within. We really just got to kind of dig in and find the artifacts. But don't be fooled by the, you know, mis- the misshapen stone to be an arrowhead. You got to dig a little deeper. So how do we do this? How do we do this practice? Well, the Buddha laid out four foundations of mindfulness. The four kind of uh, aspects that we can really just focus in. Present time awareness of the breath. Kind of part of what I gave you today as a practice. You know, aiming your attention at the experience of breathing. 
and then sustaining that intention for as long as possible. To uh, be aware of sensations of the body or the breath in the body or the, the experience of the body sitting. And to use that uh, as a, uh, an area of clear seeing. Because then, well, I'll finish. Emotions. So this feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Being able to see the feeling tones as they arise, as they stay for a time, as they pass away. Thoughts. Again, blips of energy in the mind we identify so much with. Where do thoughts come from? Where do they go to? Why are they so important? Why do we believe them? So the the Buddha says, look at this. And then intention. Seeing our intentions. So the point of the Buddha's teaching of the four foundations of mindfulness is really to see the rapid arising and passing away. To see the impermanent nature of all things. To see that uh, there is suffering in this world and that we have a choice whether or not we suffer, whether or not we, we choose to suffer. There is, a, there is a choice involved. Not pain. Pain is inevitable. And suffering, we have to, we have to build uh, an awareness and to be able to see that, that uh, space that you guys were talking about earlier to be able to get that distance. Otherwise, if we're, in, if we're entangled with our thoughts, with our feelings... With, our, with the events of life, then we're going to suffer. Craving, wanting, aversion. The, the term dukkha is considered uh, dissatisfaction. It's really what it means. Dissatisfaction with the way things are. It's not this, like, oh, this deep... I mean, there's some of that, like lamenting or grieving, loss. True. Suffering. But the, you know, the word suffering gets misused a lot. Like, oh, that's true suffering. They're, they're suffering and then there's true suffering. No, it's all suffering. It can even just be considered stress. Life stress. If we have a, some aversion to it or some grasping to it, it, then it becomes dukkha, suffering. So I'll, I'll end with this... Uh, Quote from Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho is the first uh, Westerner to be ordained in Thailand. And he's probably in his late 80s now. Uh, and Ajahn, the word Ajahn means um, teacher, teaching monk. So in his book, uh, Intuitive Awareness, he writes, Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the, change, of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change. Stay with that, because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It is not something that changes. It is a refuge that can be trusted in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation It's not an ideal. 
It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. It's like this. So this is a teaching about kind of using that awareness. And really that's what I believe the the Buddha was pointing to again and again. Trust in the awareness. So without that awareness, um, we're suffering. We're ignorant. And we've all been unaware of what we're doing or how we're acting or all of it, you know. And we all know that there's a lack when there's a lack of awareness, it just takes one little thing to apply awareness, to apply mindfulness, to gain awareness, to tap back in. It's not that awareness isn't there. It's just that we're not paying attention to it. We're too distracted by the, what we believe our thoughts are telling us. So I, I think that's kind of what's said here in this intuitive awareness by Arjun Samedo. All right, so that's my spiel for this evening. And I'll uh, open up for a couple questions. If there's anything I kind of talked about that you didn't really understand, and I I realize I kind of just gave an overview of why I feel like the Buddha ruled and was awesome. There's lots of other rebels too, you know, Jesus Christ, Socrates, Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi. Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, Malcolm X. Malcolm X, for sure. Yeah, he was. He was definitely a rebel. I just wondered, Jason, if the Buddha saw himself as a rebel, or this other's projection. Oh, it's totally my projection. Yeah. Well, I'm just, it's not just yours. Right. A lot of us see all of the figures that you made as. A rebel, right. you know, yeah, you know, I love that question. Yeah, that's a great question. Because I really feel like what I believe in my heart to be true is that the Buddha just saw that there was a need. And the need was that people needed to wake up. That people needed to wake up to what's true. Just as he woke up to what's true. And actually, I think all of the people that I named really kind of believed that for themselves. And so maybe, I, you know, I, I don't know, you know. I never had a conversation with the guy. It was a long time ago. But, it's an interesting question. I didn't It was like whether or not the Buddha saw himself as a rebel. I think that he saw himself as a nonconformist, for sure. Uh, in some of the, the teachings and the readings. Um, and he wasn't all... Uh, pleasant all the time, you know. <laughs> Sometimes truth needs to be dealt firmly. Yeah. You'll find that in the monastic tradition. There's a lot of kind of warrior-like quality. We know the tradition of how he escaped from his palace environment. Do we? Yes. But he didn't actually escape. He did. Well, he, 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 he jumped a wall with his 
Right, but he, cousin. He he did this without his father or anyone else. Right. Did this in the middle of the night without yeah. anyone knowing that he was yeah. literally running away. Yeah, he ran away from home. That's why I used to call when I was in when I was in my. Uh, undergrad, I, I wrote a paper called uh, The Buddha Was Punk Rock, and I talked about how the Buddha left his uh, home and kind of hit the streets and was like, saw the harshness of life. <laughs> yeah. Saw suffering and then, you know, went to the extreme end of self mortification. Anyway, any other questions? Anything that I talked about that didn't make sense or you didn't understand? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.